If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and we will be uh, in verses 1 through 18 today, though we will probably pick up some of those latter verses um, next Sunday. But John 5, 1 through 18 is our text today. Uh, Let me give you some structure some of you probably love structure and passages, and some of you would wish, wish I would stop talking about structure, but I think it's important. So let's talk about it for a minute. Uh, chapters 2 through 12 of the Gospel of John describe for us the years of what we would call Jesus' public ministry. Uh, they lead up then in John's Gospel to an extended teaching session that starts in chapter 13 and goes through chapter 17, uh, which happens just before his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, which are all recorded in chapters 18 through 21. Now, we're not going to be there for a while, probably about a year. Um, But today we find ourselves in the middle of those ministry years, chapters 2 through 12, and those chapters also divide into some different sections. We came to the end of one of those sections last week, which is bookended by two signs. You remember assigning Cana at the beginning of chapter 2 and assigning Cana at the end of of chapter 4, and it would seem that this next section that we're jumping into in chapters 5 through 10 is also bookended by two twin signs. Uh, First, the one that we will see today, the healing of a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, and second, the healing of a man who was born blind in chapters 9 and 10. I would invite you to begin to explore the parallels between those two men and those two healings, how they are similar and how they are different. I think it would be a fun study and a helpful one. Uh, All of these signs, you remember, are serving John's greater purpose. And you remember his greater purpose. John has written his gospel so that we would believe in Jesus and find life in him. But as we saw last week, belief is not a simple thing to define. So beginning with this story and then continuing on throughout the chapters that follow, we hear Jesus call for the kind of belief that sacrifices everything to follow him. As we start to look closely at this man healed by Jesus at the pool of Bethesda, I wonder if we might see in him the call to count the cost of following Jesus. A call to recognize that belief in Jesus sets us on a path of allowing him not just to be the savior of our lives, but the Lord and master of our lives. The question that comes to us in today's passage is the same one that comes to everyone who meets Jesus, and we'll let this question serve as our big idea for today. It's, are we willing to accept the cost that comes with following Jesus? Are we willing to accept the cost that comes with following Jesus? I could give you lots of illustrations about counting the cost, but you never want to try to improve on Jesus' illustrations, and so I'm just going to read his. Uh, listen to how Eugene Peterson has rendered Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. One day when large groups of people were walking along with him, Jesus turned and told them, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self, can't be my disciple. Anyone who won't shoulder his own cross and follow behind me can't be my disciple. Is there anyone here who, planning to build a new house, doesn't first sit down and figure the cost so you'll know if you can complete it? 
if you only get the foundation laid and then run out of money, you're going to look pretty foolish. Everyone passing by will poke fun at you. He started something he couldn't finish. Or can you imagine a king going into battle against another king without first deciding whether it is possible with his 10,000 troops to face the 20,000 troops of the other? And if he decides he can't, won't he send an emissary and work out a truce? Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Salt is excellent, but if the salt goes flat, it's useless, good for nothing. Are you listening to this? Really listening? As we listen to this account of what we would call Jesus' third sign, we see not only the power of God in Christ in the flesh, but we also see that we also see that with his authority and his power, he is he's calling for full allegiance to him. He's been revealed as the one who provides the new wine of the kingdom, who is the new temple, who gives us living water, who is the savior of the world. And those identities are, are not things that we can just sort of accept in passing. If we're going to affirm that Jesus is who he says he is, if we're going to say we believe in him, then it's going to mean that we follow him with our whole lives, that we place his word above every other word. And so the question is, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to accept the cost that comes with following Jesus? With that question in your mind, let's read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. This is what God's word says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Are we willing to accept the cost that comes with following Jesus? 
Uh, verses 1 and 2 let us know that Jesus is in Jerusalem for a feast. It's hard to be certain what feast this is. It could be Passover, but we really just can't know for sure. What's clear is that Jesus is back in Jerusalem, and John has Jesus in Jerusalem more than any of the other gospel writers. Uh, specifically in Jerusalem, he is at a pool called the Pool of Bethesda, which means House of Mercy or House of Grace. It's near the Sheep Gate of the temple complex. You all know where that's at, right? Uh, the Sheep Gate is on the northern side of the temple complex, uh, which is where archaeologists have found clear evidence of this pool. It was a real place with real people where Jesus actually walked. Uh, and I invite you, kids, you could check this out. If you Google Pool of Bethesda, you can find all of this information where they have excavated this pool, and you can see where these colonnades would have been. It's pretty interesting. Um, this pool was likely fed by some kind of a spring that would visibly stir up the water from time to time. It doesn't seem to have been as much like, um, like Old Faithful, where it happened all the time at a consistent moment, but there was some sort, of, and it wasn't as big, I should probably say, too, as Old Faithful, but at some moment, the, the waters would, would stir in, in this which is why the paralyzed, that's what the paralyzed man refers to in verse 6. Now, as we were reading this, you may have noticed that unless you have a King James Version, there's no verse 4 in this passage. Uh, it's probably down in your, your notes. That's simply because the oldest manuscripts of John don't have this verse in them, meaning that it was probably an addition that was put in to help us understand just what the man is talking about in verse 6. Um, it may have actually begun as some sort of a note in the margin that then made its way into the text itself, but it was likely not original to John. Um, still, it, it may actually convey some accurate information about the pool. It tells us that a local superstition of sorts had, had arisen out of the sporadic stirring of the waters, and it was the belief that the waters were stirred up not because of the, the spring, but because an angel had come down and touched the water at that moment, and then the first person that could get into the water, that could touch the water, would receive some sort of special healing from the pool. So what that means is there's a little, probably some natural healing properties of this pool. Connected now with this potential for supernatural healing, it means that the covered colonnades and the porches all around this pool are filled with what the ESV calls invalids. Sheltering in the shade of all of these places was an ever-changing crowd of sick people. People who were blind and lame and paralyzed. Just pause. I think sometimes we read this and we don't envision it. Can you imagine that place? What it would be like to be there? There's these five pavilions of sorts and they are filled, especially probably during a feast like this, in, mentioned in verse 1. They're filled with people who are sick. And as we look at this scene, at, at some point we might look at all the people there and, and suddenly the waters start to churn and they start to bubble. And, and then we could watch as people just scramble down to, to the edge to try to touch the water first, which doesn't bring instant healing but provides some sort of hope of, of healing. And I'm sure there's just a lot of commotion. Whenever that would happen, the crowd would get excited and, and maybe there'd be some shoving and some pushing and some fighting that would occur probably tears of joy, probably tears of despair. If we're honest, it doesn't feel like a place that we'd want to be in maybe for very long, unless we were sick. Unless you're sick, then you would want to be there. 
because you'd have some sort of hope for healing. It wasn't a hospital necessarily that you could go to or doctors who knew what was wrong with you. And so this was a place you would go because it provided some kind of hope that you might get better. I think it was probably a beautiful place, a beautiful place that was also marked by deep despair and heartache. It was a strange mixture. And Jesus arrives at this place, much like he arrived in Samaria. He, he went because that's where he wanted to go. There's no particular reason that stated why he went. But as he goes, surely his heart is filled with compassion. Compassion for the whole crowd, but we find that his heart is actually drawn towards one man in particular. As we look at this story, let's try to break it down. And we'll first note this. Jesus seeks us in our sickness and sin. Jesus seeks us in our sickness and sin. The sickness here is particular to the body, but let's think about sickness broadly as we discuss this. Uh, Verse 4 tells us that Jesus saw this one particular man who had been sick for how long? 38 years. We find later, as we've already said, that he was paralyzed to some extent. So whether he had been that way since birth or if something had happened that caused this condition later on in his life, we don't know. But 38 years, either way, is a long time to be lame. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus saw him there and knew. Jesus knew that he had been there a long time. I'm not sure if that means that Jesus knew he had been sitting by the pool for a long time or that he had come to the pool for for many years. But what we find is we find supernatural knowledge of Jesus, that Jesus knew this guy's condition, just as he knows the condition of every person here. Jesus knows us. I think that's something to draw from this. Jesus knows us. He knows you. He knows me. He knows the chronic illness that you've suffered with. He knows the emotional pain that you've carried with you for years, for decades. He knows the struggles with sin that you have that seem to paralyze you. He knows how you have been sinned against in your life. He knows all of it. Any sickness or struggle or trial, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, whatever comes to your mind, Jesus is aware. Jesus knows. He knows us. Sometimes the thought that Jesus knows us might fill us with shame or with fear, but we find in this passage that Jesus has compassion on us. Jesus is filled with compassion. He has compassion on us. Jesus seeks this man out, not to make his pain worse. He's going to have some hard words for him, but not right away. He has compassion on him. He comes to relieve this man's pain and to call him into a new life. His call is not simple, but it's a call that's filled with compassion and hope and grace and truth. As we said last week, Jesus loves us enough to meet us where we are at, but he also loves us enough to not leave us where we are. And that's what he does with this man. I wonder if we could see ourselves in this man struggling in our sickness and our sin for years. And we can see the eyes of Jesus finding us and knowing us and having compassion on us. It's easy to feel kind of lost in the crowd of people in need, right? There's a lot of people in need in the world, and I'm just one of them. But Jesus seeks us in our sin and our sickness. We're reminded that God is the initiator in our salvation. He is the one that starts it. He 
is the one who approaches us in relationship. We love him because he first loved us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Jesus seeks us in our sickness. He knows us. He has compassion on us. Notice next that Jesus not only seeks us in our sickness and sin, but Jesus invites us to consider what it means to be healed. Jesus invites us to consider what it means to be healed. I think there are a lot of curious details in this story, but the most intriguing one to me um, is the question that Jesus asks at the end of verse 6. Jesus looks at this man and says, do you want to be healed? It's like the question, would you like whipped cream with that? The answer is always yes, right? Whatever it is, it's going to be better with whipped cream probably. (laughs) No, it's a much more serious question than that. But think about it. This man's been sick for how long? 38 years. He can't walk. He is sitting in the sun by a pool And the only reason people go to that pool is why? Because they want to be healed. Nobody else wants to be there. But the people who are sick are there because they want to be healed. What about him indicates that he doesn't want to be healed? Everything about this man says, Jesus, heal me. So why does Jesus ask this question? It would seem that Jesus is actually preparing this man for the conversation that's going to happen later on in verse 14. He's helping this man see that if he does heal him, then he's also setting him on a path that's going to change his whole life. That that healing is not an isolated incident, but it's going to transform this man in ways he can't even imagine. Now, I've already belabored this point that 38 years is a long time to be sick. But think about it. After 38 years, this man, this man could have become very comfortable with being sick. It was It was what defined him. It's who he was. In fact, he could have used his excuse. It could have become, uh, his sickness could have become an excuse for a variety of sins and shortcomings in his life. It could be that his sickness was a source of income from him. If he's healed, he might lose his, his living. He was probably well known by many in Jerusalem. They probably supported him financially. For him to be healed would be for him to be forced to change in countless ways. So does he want to be healed? Andy Gullihorn sings a great song called, I Want to Be Well. (laughs) In the first verse, he describes a woman who gives up drinking. She throws all of her alcohol into the trash, takes it down to the curb, only to find herself digging through the trash cans in the middle of the night for what he calls one more last, last drink. The second verse, he speaks about a man who gets caught in his gambling addiction, but then uh, instead of trying to make things right in the right way, he steals from his company so he can try to win back all of his losses. And the chorus of the song is simple. I want to be well. I want to be well. Or I want to want to be well. I want to want to be well. I want to have the desire to be well because being well is going to change me. As we look at our own struggles and our sins and we hear Jesus ask us, if, if we want to be healed, 
we might assume that our answer is yes, of course I want to be healed. But if we start expanding, especially out beyond just physical healing, and we start to think about the sickness of our own souls, that's a hard question. Because if we take a close look at our hearts, it may reveal that we've grown comfortable in these things. We've grown comfortable in our sickness. We've grown comfortable with our sins. We've, we've, we use our shortcomings as crutches in our lives, and they help us along. They're part of who we are. Sometimes we thrive in chaos. We like the chaos. It's what keeps us going. We've become addicted sometimes to the cycle of our sin. It's hard to get out of it. We become comfortable with blaming our shortcomings on some deeply ingrained behavior. So do we want to be well? Or do we just want to want to be well? We also see this man, that, that his hope for healing is resting solely on the superstition of the stirred waters. That's what he's hoping in. Did you notice that he doesn't answer Jesus' question? There's no yes or no from the man, is there? Do you want to be, be well? That's not what he, he doesn't say, yes, Jesus, I want to be well. He says, I don't have anyone to put me in the pool. <laughs> Do you want to be well? Not possible. I don't have anyone to put me in the pool. He's a man with, um, if I can not be too harsh on this guy. I was accused of being a little harsh when I was talking with, about this with uh, some people. Uh, but he's a guy that's got excuses at the ready, maybe. I, you can push back on me. Feel free. But it's not to take away from the difficulty of his circumstances, but it's as if he dismisses the idea of healing before Jesus even finishes his question. Nah, it can't happen. The, the fact that he has no idea who Jesus is later on actually makes me wonder if he even looked Jesus in the eye. He, he may have just laid there, heard this guy talking, and never looked up at him. He has already decided that he can't be healed. It's impossible. Again, this man is in a desperate situation, and I don't want to be overly harsh with him, but I think he helps us to see the weak faith that we all often have, or the misplaced faith, because it if his hope is in this pool, then he's right. It's impossible for him to be healed, if that's where his hope is. But the person talking to him is greater than that pool. And he's greater than the entire host of angels that could come down and touch that pool. I don't know, maybe in our sins and our struggles, sometimes we've decided that we can never be healed, that we can never be changed. But is that because we have failed to let Jesus heal us? We've tried everything else, but we haven't tried him yet. And so we've decided we can never be well. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you feel like you are hopeless. You, the, you can never be well, you can never be whole, you can never be forgiven. And if your hope is in yourself or your hope is in your good works or your hope is in some sort of superstition, then you're right, you're hopeless. <laughs> You can't be healed. You can't be made well. But today, Jesus comes to you, and he says, do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? And guess what? He is able to heal you. He is able to offer you forgiveness and life through faith in him. He's come seeking his children with compassion, and he's laid down his life for their salvation, and he has the power to forgive and to heal you and anyone else who comes to him. Well, Jesus actually doesn't wait on this man to ask for a healing or to say, yes, I want to be healed. He just says, get up, 
pick up your mat and walk. And guess what? He did. (laughs) This man who for 38 years was unable to stand, stood. This man who had picked up very little for the past 38 years, bent down, picked up his mat. This man who had not walked for 38 years, just started walking. Instant healing from the power of God himself. Not a partial healing, not a questionable healing from a pool, but a complete and full healing from Jesus. Jesus can heal us. Jesus can save us. Jesus can redeem us. He can forgive us. He can help us. The question is, do we want him to? In that vein, notice this next. Jesus compels us to change our lives. Jesus compels us to change our lives. Part of what happens here in this story is that John is setting us up for the discussion with the Pharisees that's going to follow. And it's a long discussion about Sabbath and witnesses, and we are going to to get into that next week. But he does it very simply. He he does it with just this little phrase. Now that day was the Sabbath. (laughs) Little note. That day was the Sabbath. And suddenly there's a shadow over this sign because we know the Pharisees are not going to like what happened. And sure enough, they jump out from behind some column and they say to this guy, hey, it's the Sabbath. It's not right for you to carry your mat. That's against the law. You know, they're ready to go. Now, was this against the law? That's the question. Probably not. Uh, carrying this, his mat was not this man's regular vocation. It's not what he did for a living. <laughs> and so it's likely a, not a breaking of the Sabbath according to the Old Testament. Ah, but it was a breaking of the laws of the Pharisees, the ones that they had built up around the Sabbath. And so here is the discussion that ensues. The man says, well, the guy who told me to pick up my, there, there was a guy who healed me and, and he told me to pick up my mat. So he kind of blames Jesus. Well, it's, <laughs> it's not my fault. Jesus told me to do it. And so they say, well, well who is the guy who told you to pick up your mat? And he didn't know because Jesus had just sort of slipped away into the crowd. So now, before, before we move on from the pool of Bethesda, let's just pause here and recognize that Jesus, Jesus finds himself in a place that is full of sick people. The pool of Bethesda is wall-to-wall people in need of healing. And in that place, Jesus chooses to heal one guy. And a very unlikely guy. A man who is never said to believe in Jesus in this passage. That key word in John's gospel, believe, is conspicuously absent from this story. It's not here anywhere. It's a man who, who even, he kind of seems to side with the Pharisees later on when he rats Jesus out as the guy that had, had, had healed him. So get this, Jesus heals one man and he does it as discreetly as possible and then he leaves this place that was filled with people that he could have healed. Well, what does that teach us? I think it it teaches us probably a lot, but it teaches us that Jesus' ministry was not a healing ministry. And that even his healings were not about healing. Physical healing is coming with the new kingdom. Full healing. And the arrival of Jesus in his first coming gives us a foretaste of the day that sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared 
no more. He foreshadows the full fulfillment of what Russell read from Isaiah 35 earlier. The kingdom of God was and is breaking into our world, and there is physical healing and all kinds of healing. But what Jesus is most concerned about in his first coming is sin and the salvation of souls. Which is why he says to this man in verse 14, you are well. Stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. That's the second most intriguing thing to me beyond that question, do you want to be well, is that Jesus says you are well, so stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I actually think that sin is, the, is a key word in this second kind of part of the story. The Pharisees accuse the paralyzed man of sinning by breaking the Sabbath. Jesus tells this man to stop sinning. The Pharisees then accuse Jesus of sinning for breaking the Sabbath. We'll pick up that Sabbath discussion, as I said, next Sunday. But notice that in verses 16 and 18, we, we first find that the religious leaders are so upset with Jesus that they were persecuting him and seeking to kill him. They've been curious up to this point, but not anymore. They are sick with religion. And when the life and the teachings of Jesus ask them, do you want to be healed? They say, you know, we'd rather kill you than be cured of our religious hypocrisy. They don't want to be made well. They are so sick with pride that when they see a man who had walked for the first time after 38 years, the first thing that they notice is that he's got a little mat underneath his arm. That's what they're most concerned about. And they show that they were as sick as every invalid by the pool of Bethesda, maybe sicker. So what do we make of Jesus' command in verse 14 for this man to stop sinning? And even the apparent threat that if he doesn't, something worse is going to happen. Well, I think we should say that, first, our parallel healing in John 9 makes it clear that sickness is not always the result of sin. Very interesting, the parallels between those two, again. Uh, these, the disciples ask about the blind man in chapter 9. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that caused him to be born blind? To which Jesus says, neither. This, this guy was born blind for the glory of God. More on that when we get there. But this man's paralysis, it seems to have been tied to some sort of sin. We don't have any specific details, so there's no point in trying to fill them in. But we know that sin often results in sickness and pain. Just think about this. There are diseases that are a direct result of disobeying God's good commands. There are relational rifts that come from selfishness. Some people die because of a sinful choice that they make. And we could go on and on and on. Sin has natural and sometimes supernatural consequences. That's why sin is so dangerous. It's so dangerous because it doesn't look like that on the surface. It promises to give us what we want, but then it destroys us in the end. It promises to lead us to life, and instead it leads us to death. The whole book of Proverbs is filled with wisdom, warning us that rebellion against God brings death. Of course, it's often easy to see that in others, but when we look at our own lives, we fail to see how the choices that we have made have led us to a path of a place of pain and sickness, and even death. Let me be clear, not always. You're not always sick because of sin. Yes, sin, ex er, sin causes sickness in the world, but just because you're sick doesn't mean that you have particularly sinned. But 
I don't think we should always rule that out. That if there's difficulty and pain and hardship and sickness and other things in our lives, it, it, would, be, it would do us well to pause and to ask, God, is there sin in my life that is causing these difficulties in me? I think this story compels us to do that. So Jesus, again, says to this man, your condition stems from sin, or it led to sin. But, but now, man, you are healed, so stop it. Don't sin anymore. Think about that. God's grace, particularly in salvation, it compels us not to abuse his kindness. It compels us to follow him all the more closely. We don't receive blessings from him and then turn our backs on him. If we do, Jesus says that something worse is going to happen to us. That's quite the threat. Because what could be worse than not being able to walk for 38 years? I don't think it's a worse sickness. I think Jesus is probably referring to the eternal consequences of sin. If this man received the healing power of Jesus but then did not change his life, he would have revealed that his faith, if there was faith, was not genuine. That it was, as we called it, a sign-seeking faith. You remember that from last week. A faith that, that sought something from Jesus but was never changed by the truth of the words of Jesus. Remember this, the nature of true saving faith that we find throughout the scriptures is that it changes us and it endures. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. It changes us. And it does not, if it does not change us, then it probably or could reveal the falseness of our faith. And it could also threaten us that something worse awaits us in final judgment. These are sobering words, but they're loving words, aren't they? They're loving words to this man, to call him away from his sin and to call him down this path of following Jesus. And they come to us too and they ask, are we willing to accept the cost that comes with following Jesus? Do we just have sign faith? Do we just want the good things that Jesus can give to us, but we don't want to walk the path of difficulty with them? Are we willing to accept the cost that comes with following him? Jesus seeks us out. He seeks us in the midst of our sickness and sin. He knows us. He has compassion on us. He's able and willing to heal us, but he also invites us to consider what it means to be healed. He compels us to search our hearts and to ask if we want to be made well, if we just want to want to be made well, because if he heals us, remember, Jesus compels us to change our lives. He calls us to forsake our sin and to follow him. And if we don't, there are consequences. Well, we're supposed to count the cost, right? What's the cost that comes with following Jesus? Everything. <laughs> it's going to cost you your whole life. Everything that you are if you're going to follow Jesus. But before you say that that cost is too high that you'd rather sit in your sin and sickness, remember the promise of Jesus that whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think this is all also pushing us towards the end of John 6. So if you're ready to walk away from Jesus, then fast forward to those words of Peter when Jesus says to him and his friends, are you going to leave me too? What's he say? Where else are we going to go, Lord? Where could we go? You have the words 
of eternal life. And we have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? You're the only one that can give us what we need. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, the Holy One of God, can make us well. And then he calls us into his ways of holiness and joy. So, do you want to be healed? And are you willing to accept the cost that comes from following Jesus? It's a cost that leads to life and joy everlasting. We invite you into a moment of silence to reflect on God's word and then I will pray for us. Father, we confess our our sickness, not just in our physical bodies, Lord, not just our weakness, but in our hearts that sometimes we would rather sit in our sin. We're more comfortable in these patterns of foolishness and rebellion than we should be. And you invite us to be healed. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to want that that we would want to be changed, that we would want our lives to be more in line with you, that we would want to, to follow you more closely, that we would want to give up more and more of ourselves to you. Lord, fill us with that desire. Thank you that, that you call us into that and you equip us for it. Lord, your spirit is the one that causes us and allows us to, to give up ourselves to you. And so, Lord, give us what we don't have. Give us this desire to be changed. Give us hearts that will long to follow after you. Apart from you, we are lost, Lord, but thank you that Jesus comes and seeks us out. He's looking for us, and he comes to us, asks us hard questions, and even heals us when we give bad answers. Lord, you are kind and, and gracious and so good to us. Lord, would you fill us with a deep resolve to, to love you and to walk in your ways and to, to find in you our, our deepest and our greatest joy. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.